Jenny Lawson has hundreds of thousands of fans who follow her life, the good, the bad, and the hilarious, on her blog, her book club, and her previous best-selling books. They know some pretty personal things about her life, including that she suffers from depression. They also know that she treats the moments of despair and chaos of her home and family life with humor and honesty. Now in her latest book, Broken in the Best Possible Way, Jenny Lawson takes us even further into the corners of her life. That includes the bookstore she tried to open in San Antonio just as the pandemic shut down the world, and a new treatment for her anxiety and depression. We're at home with Jenny, too, pitching ideas to the TV show Shark Tank, writing letters to the health insurance company, avoiding parties and small talk, and learning why she can never go out to talk to her neighbors unsupervised again. I talked to Jenny Lawson about her book, Broken in the Best Possible Way. Okay, Jenny, so you're an introvert. You not only took the internet quizzes, you wrote one for your book. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really excited to be able to talk to you as an introvert myself. I'm glad we're on Zoom and my camera is off. (laughs) Um, So nice. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so happy to talk to you. And I know you have so many fans out there that are glad to and that they're so happy to be able to hear your voice out there. So, but for our listeners who might not be familiar with your story from, you know, bloggers to bookstore proprietress, can you tell those new listeners about that trajectory just briefly? Sure. Uh, so I have been blogging since... Oh, gosh, my daughter was two. So what's that, 14 years ago? Um, and I started on the Houston Chronicle, and then I decided to have my own blog called The Blog S because I uh, kept getting in trouble for cursing, and <laughs> I wanted to be able to use profanity the way that I wanted to. Um, and then I, I had my first book, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, um, which was a memoir, and it inexplicably was the number one New York Times bestseller. And then uh, my next book was Furiously Happy, which also um, did equally well. And then um, then I wrote a sort of a coloring book when I was having a, a bad sort of mental health time and I needed to do something other than regular writing. And uh, that was called You Are Here. And then my latest book is Broken in the Best Possible Way, which is a, a collection of essays. And uh, I opened Nowhere Bookshop, what was it? I guess 2019 is technically when we sort of opened, although um, we are still not really open to the public. Um, We're like the longest running bookshop that hasn't let people into (laughs) the actual bookshop. Although I will say uh, a week and a half ago, we finally let people in for, it was just for like one six hour period and it was only a couple people at a time. And and there was a line like around the block of people who were just so excited. And so it was great. Wow. So, you know, what is that? What is the your secret? I mean, it, it kind of defies logic. I don't know. <laughs> that, you, <laughs> that you started off blogging and it and it led to these 
unbelievably successful books and and the way that you speak to just legions of people and it's not an exaggeration to say legions of people who want to hear what you have to say I mean part of it is I think you just make people feel really happy because you're so funny and so smart just an amazing story and it is I'm going to say it's a success story it is a success story it's just it's unbelievable so I'm not surprised that you had a long line around the corner uh, outside the bookstore um, I just think it it's a good news story that just keeps on going and I know that that's saying something because you you deal with a lot of things that aren't so happy uh, but I, I I'm just amazed at the the kinship that you have with so many people out there. It's it's some it's just magical. It's just an, an amazing thing. No, I, I think it's you know it's a couple of things. I think one of the things is that I have always written about the most ridiculous things possible. Um, and I, I think I was really afraid when I first started writing about just these weird things that would pop into my head. I thought, you know, people are going to listen to that and run away. And instead, they were like, I also have always wondered why Jesus isn't considered a zombie since he returned from the dead. Um, and then as I got more comfortable, I was able to share, um, you know, some of the, the darker points of, you know, depression and anxiety and personality disorder and and things like that. And what was so lovely is um, that instead of people running away, people were like, oh, I thought it was just me. Like, I thought I was the only one who was dealing with with this. And so instead, um, you know, I was able to find this amazing community of people who were all these weird misfits who um, were just kind and and sweet and funny and mildly offensive, but not in a mean way. <laughs> and um, and it, it's just great. Well, you have these two memoirs that you mentioned in the coloring book, and you share your story about depression and anxiety and other physical health issues, mental health issues. And now we have Broken. This new book takes us to a different place. Um that's the other thing I marvel about with your writing. It's like it's never it's never the same story. It's never the same uh, book. It's never the same sort of thing that you're describing. Um, uh-huh. And I appreciate that. But all of your books do have funny titles, unusual titles. <laughs> and this yeah. one is lighter in the parenthetical, right? Uh, but tell me about, I'm going to mispronounce it. Is it Kintsugi? I think that's how you pronounce it. Yes, it's the... Um... It's the Japanese art of, you know, if you say shatter a a beautiful vase or a bowl, instead of getting rid of it, um, they would mend it. But when they would mend it, they would put um, gold in in the breaks, in the cracks, so that the, the actual history of the piece, it tells the story of becoming broken and then being rebuilt. And so in some ways, the broken piece is actually more beautiful or interesting, at least, than the um, original, you know, unflawed piece. Mm-hmm. I just love that idea that, that you took that idea and that became the 
the name of this story, the name of this book. Now, well, and you know, it make, it makes sense though because um, you know, whenever I meet people and and I meet them, and and sometimes you know, you meet somebody and they just seem like so shiny and happy and their Instagram is perfect and you know you just have this this idea that their life is perfect and probably their house is clean and um and you just think like oh that person's interesting in that they're sort of boring and maybe you're not even a real person um and then you meet somebody and they're they're broken or they're flawed or they're messed up in some way and then they they're not afraid to talk about it. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I can actually let down my guard and talk about who I really am too. Um, so it really is that, you know, those, those gold sections in the brokenness that make us unique and special. I so see that. I mean, it, so it becomes this, this interaction where the person is not their flaws. The person is the person who's telling you, about something else. Um, yeah, I, I totally love this idea. And I see that as I'm from chapter to chapter in the new book, you know, you might be talking about rats in your house. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not looking at it like, oh, Jenny Lawson has, has rodents. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just seeing like the truer story. I mean, and that's an unfair example because there's a million other things that you share. Um, and the same thing happens. It's sort of like, oh, um, Jenny had to write, Jenny wanted to write a letter to her neighbors explaining why they shouldn't talk to her. <laughs> and then I get it, right? And then I just see Jenny Lawson, you know, being herself. I, I totally, totally see it. And I, I can imagine that this becomes such a point of connection. Um, so everything else falls away and just the, the beautiful stuff is left. Um, you're very honest and candid, well, about everything. <laughs> um, but what is treatment-resistant depression, and can you talk just a little bit about this uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, that you underwent in 2018? Because as your book, as you indicate in your book, you've tried all kinds of things on this journey, and you've written about it, and and we, we've all been sort of following this journey with you, and then there's now this new thing that seems really important in the longer story about um, about your mental illness. Yeah, so treatment-resistant depression is basically, um, it's any depression where you have had, I want to say it's five, but maybe it's nine. It's, it's once you've had a certain number of treatments and they just have not worked. Um, and, and maybe, you know, like in the past, some medications would work, but they would only work for maybe a year or two. And so um, because I have treatment resistant depression and I have tried just every medication and all of the therapies and all of the different stuff, my uh, psychiatrist had recommended uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So basically what it is, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's they put this sort of a, a big magnet on your head and you're sitting in this, it's almost like a dentist chair and the magnet is working. It feels like a woodpecker is in your skull. I mean, it's very 
mm. is very uncomfortable when you when you first start. You get a little more used to it eventually, but um, it's it sort of is reprogramming the neural pathways in your head. Uh, and one side of your brain is uh, sort of where the depression lies, and that's where they they go in. And then there's another side of your brain, another section that they can find that where the anxiety is. And um, so I had treatment on both sides, one for my anxiety, one for my depression. And it's about, I think it's about 35, 40 hours total um, in the chair. I found it, for, for most people, it's like a third of the people who try it, it doesn't help at all. A third of the people, it helps some, and a third, they go into total remission, which I can't even imagine what that would be like. But the fact that there are people who are, you know, who have treatment resistant depression, who have gone through so much and a third of them go into remission. I was like, okay, hmm. I'm in, I'll try it. Um, and so I did, and I fell in that middle category. It helped me, it helped me a lot, but it, it's still never, my depression never completely went away, but it made a tremendous difference for about, it probably lasted about nine months or so, and maybe a little more than a year after I had my first session, I started to get into, you know, a real dark place again. And I had, um, another 35, 40 hours and, um, and that it helped as well. And honestly, if it wasn't for COVID, I probably a couple of months ago when I was in a really low place, I probably would have, um, gone in again and had another, another session because, um, because it, it was, re it was really helpful. And, you know, one of the great things about it, even though I, I didn't go into remission and it wasn't, permanent and it was expensive and it was uncomfortable and like it's just it's not ideal nobody wants to deal with it but what is so wonderful is I love the idea that there are these options out there that they're they're continuing to learn and you know even from one session to the next session they had learned just in that one year because they'd had so many people who had gone through they were like, oh, we, we've learned that, you know, actually if you do it like an, an inch back from here, this is going to be a little better or this is going to help. So it, I don't know, it just gives me a lot of hope that we won't always have to listen to the lies that depression tells us. Yeah. You kept a diary and by day seven, you said you felt good the first time and good enough. You said to go to a museum and importantly, I think to listen to music. I was so struck by by bo by both of those, but especially the idea that n now you felt you could listen to music, and you also cried, uh, which was a good sign that it, something was working. Uh, and I I was just stuck on on those ideas about, especially the idea um, about music. Um, so so and and also that um, that it that it puts you in the mind to be uh, in that space getting this treatment of wearing a fascinator. I mean, it looks like everywhere there's a joke. I mean, everywhere there's something. Funny. There's some banter with the doctor that has me on the floor, you know, laughing. So anyway, yeah, you know, the, it, it is interesting. I I've had a lot of people who have read my book who you know, don't deal with mental illness, or maybe they have, you know, like a friend or a family member who do, and so that's the reason why they read it. Um, or some people just read it just because they like the, the funny parts, and they're just like, okay, the mental illness is weird, but that's, um, I'm happy <laughs> to read it, whatever. Um, but, you know, I always think it's interesting, people who haven't necessarily dealt with depression, 
when they were like, oh, well, you cried. That doesn't sound like a breakthrough. Like, that seems like something you'd be doing the entire time you have depression. And, um, you know, everybody has it in a, a different way. But for mine, um, my depression is just an utter numbness, like an, an uncomfortable, terrible, just feeling absolutely nothing. Um, and so that's the reason why I, I would never listen to music whenever I had depression. And didn't, it didn't even really dawn on me, you know, that it just, it was so uncomfortable to listen to music and have this cognitive dissonance of, I should be feeling an emotion with this song. And then I wouldn't. And so instead I was just like, okay, well, I guess it's just true crime all the time because I can always listen to, you know, and they found her torso later <laughs> in the sewer. Oh, no. And I'm like, no, that matches my mood. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I read this op-ed in the New York Times uh, this week about the idea of languishing. And languishing means it doesn't have to do with feeling good or bad. It means feeling nothing. And... Um, it was written by Adam Grant, a psychologist, and he was differentiating languishing from depression, and he talked about how we have to pay attention to what is the opposite of what is what he called flourishing, and that is what languishing and depression do have in common. And he cited this statistic that kind of stopped me in my tracks, he, and he was drawing actually from the work of another person named Corey Keyes, who's a sociologist at Emory University. And he said, depression will be the number one cause of burden to every country in the world by, two, by 2030. This is from the World Health Organization, a prediction from them. And then he also said, but this does not have to be the case. And so the idea of languishing as they were writing about it was during the pandemic, like there's this new kind of terrible, you know, ennui to the nth degree that people are feeling. But but that statistic about the number one cause of burden, and I, I it's a weird word. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a weird phrasing, I think, to parse. Um, but I suppose it has to do with the idea of seeking care or of being uh, or not being able to flourish or not being able to live your life in a certain way, but that by 2030, uh, it will be the number one cause of that, of the things that make us, that keep us from going to our jobs or keep us from working or keep us from interacting with our loved ones. And so it made me think about your book, and the ways that your book can break down the stigma. And I'm sure you've heard this before with each of your books, but it's I think it's worth repeating. I think it's worth saying again, especially if the incidence is going to be this stratospheric at you know, this prediction is terrible. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking about this idea of uh, of what your book can do. <laughs> Um, to to help us along. I mean, if it, if this is it, if this is the prediction, I think people need to people who don't realize that no, you don't necessarily cry through a depression. <laughs> That's not a sign. Um, I I just think it it can go such a long way uh, to help people understand, even if they're laughing through it, <laughs> to help people understand. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot more. And you, you mentioned this cognitive dissonance of watching this a comedy show and not being able to laugh and not being able to find things funny. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's, you know, I, and I think it, it's kind of interesting because I think so many people have, because we are in this weird liminal space of, you know, of, of semi-isolation and, um, you know, so many people I think are, some of them for the first time, um, understanding what it's like to deal with, uh, you know, with sadness and, and ennui and, you know, anxiety on a larger scale. And, um, and I think in some ways that can be really wonderful because it's, it increases our level of compassion and I think it helps people to understand. And although that statistic is, you know, is scary, in some ways I find it a little bit of a relief because I think that people are already, so many people are already suffering who have not gotten a diagnosis or, you know, can't afford to get the medication or, you know, don't want to deal with the stigma. Um, I think actually it's in a way it's kind of wonderful that we can look ahead and say this is going to be a real problem and if it's going to be a real problem we need to have a solution um, because it, it's very it's very easy you know if, if you love somebody with depression or if you have depression or you know you're bipolar or anything like that you already know how much you want to find um, you know, you want to find a cure for it. You want to find the right tools in your toolbox to make yourself, you know, continue to work through it. Um, but unfortunately, most insurance companies do not necessarily feel the same way. And so, you know, unfortunately, if we can get companies to understand, actually, your people would be so much better off if they were you know, given the ability to be mentally healthy, to find the right kind of medication or therapy. And then if we can continue to look for, you know, more and more um, opportunities to find things that may work. I mean, you know, I, I talked to my uh, psychiatrist um, a few, I guess it was a few weeks ago. And I was like, you know, I just got vaccinated. So I can leave my house now. I'm, you know, finally fully vaccinated and everybody else in my house is. And so now I feel like I can, I can leave my house and, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling and I heard about uh, ketamine treatment. And um, I, you know, I remember when I was in college, ketamine was like, it was like the drug that you took at a rave. And, and I never did because I was like, that's a horse tranquilizer. That seems like <laughs> something dangerous. Um, but now, now they're like, you know, it actually in, in small doses with a doctor, you know, in a clinical setting, it can be really helpful to um, help combat depression and uh, treatment resistant depression in particular. And she was like, yeah, absolutely. And I can tell, and here's, here's the clinic and here's, I've got patients who are doing it right now. And so, so in some ways, I think it's, it's very, it's sad and upsetting to know that so many people are dealing with it and that it will probably continue to get worse. But it's also uplifting to know that there's so much more um, education. There's so many more people who are now comfortable with being out about it. The stigma, you know, compared to even 10 years ago is so much better that, you know, it, before 10 years ago, if I had said, oh, I have anxiety disorder, there probably would have been a lot of people around me going like, oh, I don't know what that is. And that sounds scary to me. And maybe you should go sit over there. But now when I say I have anxiety disorder, you know, 90% of the time people will be like, oh yeah, my aunt has that, or my daughter has that, or my, oh, okay, yeah, I understand, no, no worries. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 
so great because then we can feel comfortable uh, being human and we can feel comfortable saying, hey, you know, I have anxiety disorder, so I actually can't do this thing, but I can do that thing. And then, and then you find that that other person saying, oh my gosh, I do too. And actually that works, that, that works better for me too. And then it gives them permission to go to somebody else and say, I mean, like, for example, you know, during um, my book tour, it was all virtual and it was fantastic because I didn't have to leave my house. I didn't have to worry about how it was going to affect my mental health. And I was so, I felt really bad because I was like, you know, I'm not going to be traveling. I'm not going to be able to see people. But then there were thousands of people who showed up on my virtual tours who were like, I have never in my life had the chance to see you on a blog tour because my anxiety is so strong. There's no way that I could have traveled or I could have left my house. And so, it, I don't know, in some ways, I think that this whole COVID thing has, you know, some terrible things have come from it, but some great things have come from it that make me just want to say, can we keep some of this? Like, can we keep some of the, the ability to say, hey, let's cut everybody some slack. Hey, let's find new ways to do things. Hey, let's find different goals and, and understand that we don't all have to look alike. Oh, I totally hear that. I hear people talk about the silver linings all the time, but uh, I would say that this this would definitely be looking on the brighter side of, of COVID for sure. I mean, and- yeah, you know, one of the things that um, I, the Mayo Clinic, they do these, you know, these different like, where they have people come in and they give speeches and they talk to their doctors and they, you know, do different things. And they had asked me before, um, to come and talk about what it's like to have an invisible disability. And uh, and I would always say, I can't because I have an invisible disability and it's anxiety <laughs> and that's why I can't. And then this year for the first time ever, um, they were like, you know what, we're doing a virtual this year. And so I was able to do it. And, and not only that, but other people were able to do it. And it was just, it was amazing and wonderful. And, the, um, and even the people who were were throwing it who do it every year they were just like i can't believe we never thought before about the fact that you know we're we're talking about disabilities and we're like you know a healthcare institution and we never really considered the fact that that, that even you know dealing with disabilities that there are certain disabilities you need to to work around where the the virtual thing makes it easier yeah well I'm I'm thinking about the chapter called the, the Things We Do to Quiet the Monsters. You mentioned that the stigma of mental illness is shifting and that you have support and medication and treatments and you acknowledge these privileges that you're grateful for and that you know that others don't ha- necessarily have, even though it's not been that easy a road for you and your family. Um and, in, and then there's this chapter called An Open Letter to My Health Insurance Company, which the first line is, sometimes I think you want me dead. And I feel like, yes, maybe we, wherever we are in terms of our health, maybe we've all felt like we could start a letter to the insurance company that says, you know, I know you don't want me to have healthy gums, or <laughs> I know you don't want me to wear decent glasses, <laughs> or uh, et cetera. Um, I was just struck by 
by both of those chapters in the sort of the larger work of of your book. And you're always sort of thinking about not just your own specific story, but sort of the the outreach to others who can learn from that. that those were very eye-opening uh, chapters for me, stories for me. Um, you're also really good at coining words and making up these funny phrases that we somehow all understand <laughs> in the context of the work. For instance, in The Things We Do to Quiet the Monsters on page 85, you mention reverse Fonzie. <laughs> and I knew what that meant. And you didn't have to explain it. Um, but I never would have thought to <laughs> to put those two words together to describe something. <laughs> and you uh, also in Eclipse, not the Twilight book, the other kind, <laughs> which everybody needs to read and see the pictures. You talk about lawn gerbils. And so in any other context, I would be like, lawn gerbils, what's that? But in this context, it, it made so much sense. But I have to say, too, you have an actual word. It is tintinabulation. And I, like you, in a, in a different chapter where you describe listening to, um, oh, I'm trying to remember what the word was, but the, the British pronunciation and then the, of, of, uh, of a woman's voice and then the male pronunciation and how your husband comes out of his office and says, what's going on out there? Because it sounds like they're talking to each other. But anyway, I did listen to the pronunciation online of Tintinabulation in this gorgeous essay that you wrote about collecting buttons and it, it's a very different beat. It's a very different moment in the book, but it, but it, of course, it's seamless and it's there and it's Jenny Lawson. Uh, but I just have, I just want people to remember what a gorgeous writer you are. You're not just funny, and you're not just sort of sharing this story and you know writing these sort of sorts of letters about health insurance or t teaching us about stigma or teaching us about TMS. But I, I've got to say that, that that essay just knocked me out. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. You made my whole day. You know, it, it's, re it's really nice. Um, I, I'll, write, I'll write a chapter or an essay and then I'll think, does this fit um, and, and what I have learned is that nothing fits and everything fits. I mean, it, books are just like people. They're just made up of, you know, whatever pops out at the moment. And, you know, for, for a long time, I was like, oh, I should be only funnier, only serious. And what I've realized is that your audience is remarkable in being able to take a million different things. And so you know, giving myself permission to be, you know, vulnerable or funny or weird or slow or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's just, it's really lovely that people stick around for it. Um, and I, I, always have, I always have to remind myself, I'm like, okay, I'm not for everyone. Like, not everyone is going to think that I'm funny or interesting, but... The, you know, the 10% the of weird people who are going to read this and go, oh, my God, I found my people. That's who I'm writing it for. 
And so whenever I start to doubt myself and go, oh, this is too weird. This is too, that I'm like, you know what? There's probably somebody out there who thinks they're too weird and they're going to find me and they're going to be like, I found my people. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I want to ask you about two things I have not talked about enough with my friends because of the pandemic, shoes and diets. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. this, this, uh, this hilarious essay, I mean, it's, oh, I hate to say, oh, it's so funny, but, but because it's, you know, it's the result of everything that you're dealing with. But um, this, uh, this losing your shoe, Thelma, your left, <laughs> your left shoe, all your left shoes are named Thelma and all your right shoes are named Louise. And, exactly. They uh, go together. They go together. <laughs> That is, everybody needs to, who hasn't gotten this book, everybody needs to read this book for that and uh, for, for I Am a Magpie, of course, and for the, the, uh, the essay on the, uh, the cock chafer. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, yes. You know, it's, what's funny is so often people are like, why do you come up with your ideas? And I'm like, have you read my book? Because they're all ridiculous. All the stories are like, you know, I found a bug on the ground and it was doing crunches and I embarrassed myself in front of the neighbor. I mean, none of them are like, you know, I saved an orphanage. They're all these just absolutely ridiculous, mortifying moments. But the mortifying, ridiculous moments, those are the ones that people love. Those are the ones that make you go, oh, you're a real person. And now I have permission to be a real person, too. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly. And, and, and the way that you weave it, I don't know how you do it. It's like we start, it's the eclipse. And then, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's this totally other thing where you have the box on your head and oh, it's, it's just the best. Yeah, and then the cat's in the trap, and then I'm trying to catch the rats, and then, yeah, it's it's a little nuts. I actually, I considered reading that chapter for during, um, when I did readings on my virtual tour, and I was like, holy crap, this book is, this chapter is so long and ridiculous and goes off, and I was like, I'll just read, like, these three pages, and I'm like, no, because it just ends in such a weird, I'm like, no, okay, well, I can do the middle part, no, no, and I was like, no, it just has to go all by itself, yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine people in their, you know, in front of their computers at their houses with their headphones on and uh, nothing else, you know, going on at home and just like laughter ringing out and, and everybody, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of homes. I just think that's awesome. You know, what was so great is because like normally I go when I'm recording the audiobook, I go to New York and they have me in like this you know, fancy studio, and there's the producer there and the director there and all that stuff. And, and it's always just terrifying and really just, it's it's not my, it's not my cup of tea. Um, but because of COVID, they were like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to record your audiobook in your closet. And um, that's, that's how we're going to do it. And it was fantastic. <laughs> it was great. It was just me in my closet. And the, I've, I've only listened to a little bit of it because I don't like the sound of my own voice, um, but it, it's gotten really good reviews. It's on the audios on the New York Times list. Um, but the, uh, there's all of these where you can hear my cat, Hunteress Tomcat, you can hear him like purring and meowing and my dog, Dorothy Barker, you'll hear, hear you know, her off. And so, I mean, in a way I'm like, okay, maybe this is unprofessional, but people love it. They're like, it's 
think I'm in the house with you. I'm like, oh, you are in the closet with me. You are literally in my closet with me for six hours. <laughs> I, I think all your audiobooks should be recorded in your closet with your animals from now on, forever and ever. Me too, 100%. Like, like I, I, I'm not going back. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like, nope, COVID's here forever. And they're going to be like, really? Because it's not. And I'm like, nope, it totally is. And I'm still wearing the mask and I'm just going to, stay home and although i will say today for the first time ever so my parents are here i haven't seen them since 2019 but we are all fully vaccinated and everybody in my house is vaccinated and so i'm i get to see them for the first time and today we are actually gonna eat in in like a restaurant for the first time in what 14 months oh my god i mean it's just I'm a little, I'm a little anxious, but I'm also, there's part of me that's like, what's it going to be like? Like, do you wow. remember restaurants? <laughs> wow. Well, I hope you guys have a great time. That, that sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful oh. for your parents too. That's, that's, oh my gosh. so, we'll, we'll, you know, you'll get reacclimated and then pretty soon, you know, it'll be great. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a slow process though. Yeah. It's that. You know, I, I love that there's so many people, you know, at the, at the uh, bookstore that I own, um, everybody there, we've all had our, um, our vaccinations. And um, recently I was there and they were like, you know, we actually could take our masks off. We're all fully vaccinated. We all, <laughs> you know, use the right socially distancing and we all, and, and I was like, could we really? And we took our masks off and I was like, this is sinful. Like this was <laughs> so naughty. Like I feel, I feel like, like I have just, um, smuggled in eight pounds of cocaine. Like this is, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Jenny Lawson, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was fun. Jenny Lawson is the author of Broken in the Best Possible Way. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>